Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. We talk about computing and technology. And uh, tonight uh, we have Vanessa Tolker, that's me, and I'm joined by Ms. Laura Summers. Hey there. Hey, and Mr. Dan Morganti. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, welcome to December, you two. We've made it. Well done. All the way here from uh, the, somehow the past and the future. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What Who day. even knows? Yeah. The year the year counter is like 90% filled in and it's blowing my mind. Yeah. Absolutely. Mine is just stuck on that little wheel, churning, churning, trying to get to the end. But tonight we look into what has technology newsletter editor Anthony Aegeus been reporting on over the year. We want to ask him about some of the big trends in renewable energy and lots more. And then later on in the show, we ask what makes a good remote drone pilot. I see you out there, all you people with drones on your Christmas wish list. Um, so if you ever wanted to actually be good at drone piloting, did you know there's all sorts of training courses that you could take? We're going to be finding out how unmanned vehicles are being deployed to solve all sorts of problems with our second guest this evening. But first, what's happening in the news tonight, Laura? Well, we've just heard literally just a couple hours ago from the Australian Communications and Media Authority, or ACMA for short, that they've registered some new rules to require telcos to detect, trace, and block scam calls. So it's a code called the Reducing Scam Calls Code, which is not a tongue twister at all. <laughs> and it's a d direct recommendation of um, their Combating Scams Action Plan. And essentially what they're doing is trying to make it harder for scammers to target Australia and to make there to be more consequences for them if they do like continuously bombard Australian numbers with calls. Um, and to contextualize this a little bit, um, we've actually talked a bit on the show about scam um, behaviors that have been happening in 2020. We had uh, Nicola on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about scam and emails um, and to just um, pinpoint scam and phone calls. Um, according to the Scam Watch data, Australians have lost 36, sorry, 35.6 million to scam calls in 2020 so far. And that accounts for about 46% of all scamming that's being reported. Um, and as we know, with a lot of this data, things don't even always get reported because people are embarrassed or ashamed that they've been the victim of a scam. So it's very possible that number is actually quite a lot larger. So this is serious business. And um, it's really interesting and quite positive to see this like serious step being taken to hopefully um, reduce the appeal for people to be targeting Australians. I'm really happy to see this change um, or this progress, I guess, mm. because I've noticed that the scam calls I'm getting lately are even more challenging to deal with because you can no longer block the numbers. So many of them are spoofing the numbers that they're coming at you with that they can just keep hitting you with different fake numbers. It's just exhausting. And some of us just have to answer our phones for work. So the yeah. more we yeah. can do to fix that, the better. And I'm not sure if uh, my number has gotten on some list recently, but the frequency of them has increased quite a bit this year as well. 
Yeah, than absolutely. So hot right now. Yeah. Yeah. I actually Everyone can't see any stats on the volume of calls, but I've had that experience too. And I imagine just like every other, you know, group of people who are stuck at home trying to work out how to make a living like scammers, I'm sure, just like doubling down on ways to automate and improve the volume. I mean, they're they're playing a numbers game, right? You know, that's that's literally what they're doing is hoping that, you know, one percent or dot one percent of all the calls they make will convert into some kind of cash. Um, so, Hey, if they can work out ways, you know, like as Vanessa said, to spoof their number or to, you know, um, scale up their, their technique, then I'm sure that they'll do it. Um, but yeah, look, it's interesting and it's certainly going to put a stronger onus on the telcos to do more of this work. So they're going to actually have to do more, more on their end to detect these calls. Um, they're probably going to be encouraged to ask consumers to be getting these calls reported back to them. So I don't know if you've ever tried to report scam back to your telco. Um, I have tried to report some text scams that I've had and found it very difficult and very frustrating. And I think that's probably something they're going to need to fix in order to be compliant with these kinds of rules. So I think it's easier to go to scam watch than it is to go to your telco at this point, but hopefully that will change. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Dan, what's going on with IKEA lately? Yeah, well, uh, they've heard about our conversation about drones and they've thought, uh, we're going to implement some of that. Um, Really? So, yes, IKEA (laughs) is teaming up with Verity, who are known for their drone light shows. Uh, They've worked with the likes of Celine Dion and Metallica. Um, Obviously not at the same time. That would be a weird show. But they're they're known for uh, autonomous drone systems. Um, And IKEA is uh, contracting them uh, on a pilot test uh, for automated drone solutions uh, for their warehouse inventory. Um, So scaled up, this solution has the potential to greatly reduce the uh, working hours required to manually check inventory. Um, it sounds really cool and very sci-fi. The, um, the system consists of a set of autonomous drones that take off from charging stations and go from pallet to pallet collecting images, videos and 3D depth scans um, and then comparing that with what's on file as being in those locations. So they take a photo of a pallet racking. There's no pallet there when the computer says there should be um, and then they can rectify it. But, uh, yeah, it's looking like IKEA in the future is going to have uh, drones zipping around their... Um, warehouse aisles which is pretty cool it sounds like a good use of drones i mean it's um it could be dangerous work and to be able to automate something like that that's a bit dangerous and probably repetitive sounds really constructive like a good use of the technology that kind of work is perfect for computers so yeah yeah, I was just thinking of the number of times I've been in the IKEA warehouse trying to like get a precariously balanced flat pack down without knocking my head. <laughs> um, and yeah, like it's it's easy for those flat packs to kind of get all wished washed around with. Um, and if, if you don't have people kind of going down the aisles every couple hours fixing it up. Um, so yeah, perfect for drones to pinpoint those kinds of like dangerous teetering flat packs and make sure someone goes and fixes it up. One step closer like to it. just uh, having a buzzer on the racking that you can push and a robot flies overhead, pulls it out for you and bundles it up in a trolley for you. Yeah, next year, Dan, next year. Yeah, yeah we can only hope. <laughs> so interesting that we're speaking about retail there. Um, COVID has had massive effects on retail around the world. In terms of how much of the retail spending is proportionately going to online, no surprises there. Globally, last year, 14.1% of retail sales were e-commerce purchases. That has um, jumped up, well, that's projected to jump up to 22% worldwide by 2023. Um, 
In the US in 2019, online spending represented 16% of total retail sales of the year. But this year, we've seen over 70% revenue growth um, in that space for them. And in, in the UK, it's even bigger. Like e-commerce is now 40% of UK retail. And that is really um, straight down to the lockdowns that they're having there and the massive effect it's having on groceries, on pharmacies, on every other type of thing that you might want to purchase to make being locked in your house a bit more comfortable. So it's having a huge effect. They're wondering... Um, how they can predict and project out of this, how much of this change will stay once um, populations are healthier and freer. So that's going to be pretty interesting. Um, there's also been a big impact for uh, the difference between locally made products and overseas sourced products. Uh, so that's it's just uh, an interesting area to look at in the face of the changes that we're going through. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Anthony Aegis is Chief Sizzler. What does this mean? No, he's not spending his weekends down at Bunnings. He is editor of The Sizzle, which is a daily email newsletter full of the latest tech news with an Aussie slant. We love reading it because of that Aussie slant, Anthony. It's brilliant. So we thought you were just the man to cut through the hype as we look back on the year in the technology sector. Welcome back, Anthony. Thank you very much. It's always nice to be on Triple uh, R. So good to have you. Um, there's been so much going on this year, and I feel like I've read more than it than uh, sorry more of it than ever because I've been stuck in front of my computer so much. So the first topic we wanted to um, get you to reflect on was the NBN. <laughs> what has been happening in that space this year, and how have you been feeling about it? It, it, of all the things I've written about, because I've been doing this as well for five years now, and this has been like an evergreen topic. So this year in particular has had its own little surprises. Um, they've finished it apparently. Like, so they've claimed it's like mission accomplished. Every premises in Australia has been hooked up and um, we've all got great internet. That's obviously not the case. If you're living in the real world, there's still over a hundred thousand homes that are still just like, we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, there's still people on slow connections in on the satellite service, which is quite poor on the fixed wireless service, which is uh, congested. And um, the HFC network is just like during peak times, it can't cope a lot of the time. As we saw during the Melbourne lockdown in, in uh, uh, particular, um, Netflix, uh, YouTube, and a few other services had to degrade their service so that MBN could cope. So it wasn't really like, we've got this whiz bang, you know, $60 billion network yet, if people are actually using it too much, it can't cope. And it didn't really stand up for a lot of people during the time they needed it the, the most. Um, with the people who haven't gotten connected yet, um, I saw a piece that was a couple of weeks old now saying that they actually like had some uh, address data problems and they found that like there was 300,000 like surprise premises that they hadn't connected yet. Um, I don't know. I think that was that was released uh, after they announced that, hey, we're done. Everyone's connected. Um, but apparently like they, they purchased some data from a data provider who said like they'd provided Australian dresses. But then when push came to shove, addresses does not 
the same as premises because you can have extra units, you can have granny flats, that kind of thing. Um, so apparently like that's where this surprise 300,000 extra premises comes from. Um, but I'm, I don't know, I haven't heard any further news on this. I was just curious if you knew, like, do we know when they're planning to get that rolled out? Is that, is that the actual end of the rollout or if that's just going to keep chugging along in the background quietly and we won't worry about it too much? It, yeah, pretty much. Don't ask any questions. It'll be done when it's done. That's what, as, as far as the government and MBN are concerned, the network is finished. These 300,000 uh, homes and premises are just, they'll get to it whenever they have time. There's no kind of date set on those. So really, it's complete, but not quite complete. Gee, consumers really want to see the service level agreements that are in place for that. That's the, that's a bit shocking. We'll move off the MBN because it could eat too much time. <laughs> we know you're really passionate about renewable energy, Anthony. What has been happening this year? What's exciting you in that space or what's well, not exciting you? Well, there's actually been quite a, um, in the last kind of week or so, um, in the state budgets, um, like New South Wales is spending tons of money to... Um, uh, build like renewable energy zones. And it's interesting that they're taking that approach because they're a liberal government in New South Wales. So even the 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 ideology of the federal government hasn't kept up with what the states are doing. So in New South Wales, there is liberal government. In Victoria, again, in our state budget, there's going to be like wind farms all over the place. Like I know where, where, where I live in um, uh, Western uh, Victoria, all the way down from Ballarat down to Geelong is just wind it's just wind farms left right and center um it's great to see and um massive uh, distribution cables are going to be installed to actually get that power from here to melbourne um and linking up the rest of the um the assets in victoria to, to to the grid so um that's great um even queensland has like huge um plans as well so all the states are kind of getting things done whereas the federal government's kind of like well, let's install more gas pipelines and gas uh, uh, out of the ground. And it seems to be they're just being ignored. The state governments are like, well, this is what makes sense. This is what we need to do. Um, it's financially better. Why would we do this stupid thing? So it's kind of nice to see the government being ignored, the federal government. On, on the other hand, if they were more hands-on and involved, we could, we could transition to a renewable energy economy so much faster. And what did you think about the big battery energy storage project um, to be built by Tesla, funded by Neowen, out near the, I think it's the Moorable Terminal Station near Geelong? Yeah, that's about half an hour from, from my house. So it's, yeah, it should be pretty cool. And it's a huge, huge battery. There's one also in Adelaide. They're building an, an, another giant battery too. Um, and it seems to be that these batteries are great at like, because renewable energy can be on and off, you know, like if, it's, if the mm -hmm. sun's cloudy. Or it's windy, or, or or still, these batteries are like a nice buffer, so they're not actually used all the time to just like power everything. They're good to like manage the time between when there's no sun or there's no wind, and when the gas turbines need need to turn up in that five minute, ten minute gap. It's perfect for for that to kind of like to kind of calibrate the uh, the grid and keep everything stable. Whereas without them, it really drops voltage and drops the frequency and can play havoc with the uh, the grid. So that kind of these batteries are a nice kind of buffer and a ballast to to stop that happening. So you spoke about the schism between the policies at the state government level and the federal government in terms of renewable energy and supporting that industry. 
with this Tesla, um, with these Tesla battery examples, we know that Mike Cannon Brooks from Atlassian had a lot to do with getting the first one in the ground in South Australia. Um, to what extent do you think that uh, corporations, businesses, and those sort of interests are um, helping the states make changes in this space, or is there something else going on that explains some of this difference? I, I, I think it's simply it makes money. Like there, it's pure dollars and cents now. Like for many years, renewable energy advocates had to convince people, "Hey, look, it's better for the environment, less less pollution. This feels good." But now that the 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 suits come along and it's like, "Hey, we can get rich out of this," and that's when you see the real action happening, um, for better or for worse. But that's what's happening now. The economics stack up so well um, that it's like, "Well, okay, time to get onto it and start making some cash out of this." I saw some some news earlier in the year about um, solar solar panels that were like actually the housing the, the housing tiles. Like I think that might have been an Elon Musk project as well. Um, but I haven't seen anything else on that. Do either of you know if that's coming to Australia? Because that seems like an ideal housing material for our climate, right? In um, uh, Queensland, Tesla has a demonstration house that's like mm -hmm. it's got their their car, the battery, and those uh, tiles on the roof. But it doesn't seem to be progressing anywhere in the world beyond those demonstrations. Um, there's a factory in New York that, that that's supposed to uh, to be making them, and they got huge grants from the the government there. Yet production seems to be like no one can buy these things. So yeah, they're also quite expensive. I mean, Tesla pitches it as you know, hey, it's a whole roof. You don't need so if if the roof in your house is failing, you can not only um, you know put tiles in there or uh, metal panels. You can put and then put panels on top these are the whole roof structure so that's kind of why it's it's so, so expensive but even then it's in in australia where solar panels are so cheap and there's so many rebates it's hard to um justify the cost so that could be why i think it's not as widespread yet so we have obviously supply chain issues with lots of things in technology this year because of covid um You've mentioned solar panels, and that's definitely an area that we've seen affected. Have you seen that um, have ramifications in many other technology products? Well, this year was very weird. If you wanted a webcam or a microphone or an external screen or a desk or a chair, any kind of working from home stuff, they were outrageously expensive if you could find one. I think even now a, a webcam like that used to cost about 70 or 80 dollars is still 100 to 100 you couldn't give them away you could not give them away that's amazing yeah 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 um anthony you're keen on electronic vehicles and we've had a lot of recent news that um various states are putting different taxes in place that seem to be disincentives to use what do you think is going on there? Because that seems to run contrary to the directions of lots of other things. Yeah, it's very odd. I mean, some states in Australia, like uh, Western Australia and Queensland, have actually said, we're not going to do this. Um, New South Wales has been on, on the fence. South Australia and Victoria have actually confirmed that they're going to do what, what they call a, a road usage charge. So in theory, a road usage charge is actually a great way to kind of um, disincentivize driving, which is a good thing overall because you, there are externalities on driving. There's the congestion in cities, there's the health toll it takes, not just for, even in, in an um, uh, electric car, they still co cause accidents. They still hit pedestrians, unfortunately. So those kind of things are great to kind of go, look, 
if you're going to use the road, you should be paying per distance. And now the, the governments have been doing this for many years through petrol taxes. So there's a fuel excise, um, but uh, electric cars don't use petrol. <laughs> so they see it as, hey, these guys are freeloading off, you know, the roads. You know, they're not paying their fair share. So to them, it's very obvious to kind of introduce a road usage tax on electric vehicles because it's like, well, you're using the road. The petrol people pay to use the road. You, you should too. But it doesn't take into account, well, we're also weightless pollution. Um, you know, we're trying to transition to these vehicles. We paid heaps of money for them for them in the in, in the first place. So our stamp duty and our GST was way more than an, an equivalent uh, uh, petrol car. Over the lifetime of the vehicle, we actually pay more tax. And don't forget the power put into these cars. We, we pay GST on it. But it's, it's not as if there's no tax at all. So mm. it's it's weird. Like on one hand, it, it is fair. Like yes, there should be a road usage tax, but that should really be done at a federal level through the to remove fuel excise, have a road usage tax on all vehicles, and then exempt EVs from it as an incentive to buy an, an, an electric car. That's the common sense way to do it. But as we know, like with re renewable uh, power, the federal government has its own ideologies and that's so unlikely so the states have had to kind of go do, do their own thing but in an ideal world this should really be a federal thing so no matter where you drive in australia so because for example if i go from victoria where i pay two and a half cents per kilometer then go to new south wales or to south australia i don't pay for the using their roads yet yeah, i do here so it's it's it's, mm -hmm. it's weird that, that two and a half cents a kilometer is quite a lot too that's not like you know if you do if you do any amount of driving that that would add up quite a lot um yeah it's i find it confusing how we get these kind of mixed messages where you see some some initiatives where you're like oh yeah let's turn charging stations you know like turn existing power spots into charging stations or you know like building the infrastructure up so that people are being incentivized to use evs but then yeah, it's, it seems like a little bit of a mixed message, but as you say, like maybe it's to do with the sort of competing ideologies at the federal and state level. Yes, um, yeah, that, that seems mm -hmm. to be the, the most rational explanation for the, the weirdness. Well, and I think cynically, we've also heard that introduce this tax now while the number, the proportion of EV users is quite low so that you get less kickback and it's established and then, you know, the rest of it's just jacking it up over time. Yes, yeah, that's mm. another thing that could be yeah, the salami uh, method of introducing <laughs> things that people do not like. Mm. Not allowed to bring up salamis here right now, Anthony. None of us have had dinner. Um, <laughs> Laura, next question's yours, I believe. Uh, it's not, but I'm happy yeah. to oh, ask it. Um, I'm just, Dan, I'm Dan. just curious. It's, it's uh, got much less stakes than what we're talking about, you know. Uh, <laughs> but just uh, I'm wondering what's going on with Binge. Why did it take so long for uh, the Murdoch companies to get streaming right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's it's because they've had Foxtel as the chain, the, the, the rock around their uh, neck, and they had to be dragging that along for so many years to kind of get with the, uh, the program. Hmm. Yes, good. I just like dumping on Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Yeah. Too big to fail. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, go. Oh, no, I was just going to say, did you want to, since we're talking about um, binge watching and, and streaming media, do we want to have a little um, chat about that whole mobile-based app platform that just had a little crash and burn recently? Like, it was never coming out to us. I don't think it was here. It was only here very briefly, but it was the mobile-gated 
mobile gated streaming service and it, it like got an enormous amount of VC and everyone was excited about it for about five minutes and then it crashed and burned. Yeah, what um, a waste of money that was. All, all uh, the things that that money could have been spent on and they just burnt it on like yeah. five minute TV shows. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like micro TV. And, and like the weirdest thing to me was like, do you not realize that people watch TV on their phones when they can't watch it on their screen? Like, why would I ever want to watch it on my phone if I could transfer it to my TV? Like it just feels to me like they didn't do basic usability testing. Yeah. And isn't micro TV just TikTok anyway? And now we've got stories on every platform. So <laughs> uh, including the monolith. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Anthony, we couldn't let you go without asking you um, what technologies do you think people will be gifting this year and uh, and what would you like for Christmas? I've I've seen a lot of people who want Sonos equipment. They're so like they're so um just easy to use. If you want a speaker, you just put it there, you plug it in, you use the app and send the music to it and it's they, and, and they sound great. I think a lot of people love Sonos gear and they're actually on sale quite often with the Black Friday sale, so they're they're, they're a great present. Um, so if I didn't know what to get someone, I'd buy them a, a Sonos speaker because if they don't have one, they, they will like it. If they have one, they'll add it to their system and they'll 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 love it. So it's a kind of a no fail present there. And what about for you yourself? Like what's on your wish list? I I have recently been setting up a home cinema because I love movies and the cinemas have been closed for months. So I figured right well, now's the time to uh, build, build my own. I've been wanting it for years. Now now's the time. So I, I'd love some. Um, like some uh, fancy 4K Blu-rays because um, now Beautiful. I have a, re a reason for them. That is great. Well, I'm sure Santa's heard that. Um, our chat tonight has really actually given a great little entree into what your newsletter, your daily newsletter is all about. You get the hard-hitting tech news with a very Australian slant, but then at the end you get all these little recommendations of where there's some bargains around for hardware um, that are, it's just incredibly helpful. Um, how can people subscribe to The Sizzle, Anthony? thesizzle.com.au. It's uh, normally $5 a month, but there's a two-week free trial with no credit card, no kind of strings attached. So you won't get stung if you sign up and then decide you don't want it and, or you uh, f f uh, f forget about it. So thesizzle.com.au and all the info is there. Awesome. Thanks so much and have a great end of year, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Cheers. Bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We're about to speak to Joseph McMahon, who is the Program Director at Swas Rove. I'm going to ask him in just a moment how to pronounce that correctly. But they are a remote pilot licensed drone training and consultancy provider. We invited him on the program tonight to explore the burgeoning field of drone piloting with us. Welcome, Joseph. Hi, guys. Awesome. How are you? Very well, thank you, Joseph. I'm sorry you couldn't hear our introduction for you, but you can be confident that we fluffed the pronunciation of your company. How do we pronounce that? <laughs> okay, it's actually not Russian. It's uh, The first part of it is Sirith, and the second part is Roth. So Sirith oh. is the uh, Irish word for up. It's the Gaelic word for up, and it's also specialist on manned aerial systems and remotely operated vehicles. Very clever. We had found the acronyms, but that still didn't help us pronounce it at all. And <laughs> as soon as you say Gaelic, I feel so much better about not being able to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> so, Joseph, you're on air with me, Vanessa, and we've got Laura 
in our Skype as well and uh, you've been chatting to Dan on the phone side. We yeah. are so interested in the field that you're working in and we wanted to know, first of all, how did you get into the field? Yeah, so uh, I was a financial services practitioner. I was a program director and project manager in technology for 25 years. Um, I spent a large part of my career doing long five-year, three-year, five-year programs and uh, dying slowly in that process. And I finished the last piece of work for a large Australian bank about two years ago and really couldn't face into doing that again. So I've been building and crashing drones for about 10 years. I looked into the technology a little bit more closely and decided that it was time to make a leap and follow a passion. Oh, I love that. My dad's an ex-Air Force um, person and he's very into the drones just for fun anyway. Uh, I can imagine lots of people dream about moving into piloting drones for a living. What sort of jobs are there out there for remote pilots? It has just boomed over the last few years. So when we started about two and a half years ago, a little bit over that, it was really looking at the big end of town. So it was resources, energy, infrastructure, big capital programs. Now it has just grown exponentially all over the uh, all over various industries. The areas we see the biggest growth at the moment are agriculture. That is really booming. So crop health and analytics. Remote aerial spraying is really big at the moment in a growing area. Lots of research, so taking people as well out of areas of risk in agriculture, so things like spraying particularly, working alone, working in remote areas. Um, that's really big. So we also see as well the more traditional areas, construction, working at height, working again at risk. But again, assessing capital work, so surveying as a, an agent to surveying is really busy as well. And these are more roles where people are coming in with some existing skills and then they're augmenting those skills with a micro-qualification like a remote pilot license or a remote operator certificate. And it's giving them the opportunity then to broaden their own role and to maybe step up the ladder a bit. So if, if this was something um, one of our listeners was interested in exploring, like what, what kind of person would you recommend explore this kind of job? Like I, I have no sense of what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. Like what, am I going to be sitting at a desk piloting a drone or am I going to be driving around like outback Australia piloting a drone? You could be doing either. Um, so the role is, a lot of people think that you get into the role and you're going to be flying drones all day, every day. The, the weather in Australia doesn't lend itself to that to start with. And it is a really safety-focused industry as well. So quite a lot of time on the desktop, planning your missions, job safety assessments, risk assessments, understanding the environment you're going to be working with, understanding what the client's requirements are, so back to analysis, business analysis skills and project management, being able to capture a customer's requirements and play that back to them, um, and then execute on those requirements, so capture the footage. And depending on your skill set, bring that back do some post-capture production, or just upload the data to their cloud server, and then they push that into their own workflows. I'm hearing a lot of your project management skills come to the fore as you describe what you have to do, which is help people understand what they need as well as give it to them. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm really curious um, to, to hear if the, the sort of human aspect of plotting these plotting these courses or doing the actual drone drone flying, is that something you expect to be taken over by automation or machine learning anytime soon, or is it still like quite difficult to get right? And do you often need like that human there to kind of handle unforeseen circumstances? 
Yeah, at the moment, autonomous flights are possible, but not as frequent as you might imagine. Uh, particularly under the current regulations, you need to fly within visual line of sight most of the time, which means you need to be hands-on, a human present watching with their own naked eye how the drone is performing. Um, that's important. That is evolving. We're working on a number of research projects with the leading universities, adding um, artificial intelligence and augmenting some of the intelligence and machine learning so that we can do things like identify invasive weeds, invasive animals over particular areas. Shark spawning is another big one, looking at marine mammals, coastal erosion. So the addition of AI and machine learning has really pushed the industry forward. And I think that is the direction we will see it moving in. So, Joseph, you've mentioned that it's a highly regulated field. Are there significant differences in the constraints as they apply to commercial versus domestic pilots, you know, hobbyists? Yeah, there are. So what we do is for commercial pilots, a remote pilot license is for people who want to use the remote pilot license to fly a drone, multi-rotor or fixed wing, up to, say, 25 kilograms, but they want to do that for reward, to earn a living from it. Um, the key difference between that and a recreational pilot is that a recreational pilot is just doing it for fun. So they don't need a license. So what's the demand for this kind of work at the moment? It's big and growing. So we have, we, we're the training partner with a couple of leading universities. So we see students coming through from a wide range of fields. And we also have quite a lot of private clients and commercial clients. When the industry first really kicked off about three years ago, we saw that the trend was very much to hire in operators to do the work on behalf of companies. That has flipped quite considerably recently over the last 18 months or so, where industry are now seeking well-trained pilots with other skills and expertise to come and work for them as their own direct employees, their own direct contractors. That seems to be the trend. That allows them to really focus on the safety and building skills and expertise that are important to them. Is there a lot of context-specific um, knowledge or understanding that the drone operator needs to sort of develop to do well within specific industries or verticals? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Depending, again, on the market segment you choose to go for. So if you go for real estate, for example, not a lot of point in arriving into a real estate operation if you don't know how to take a great shot and represent yeah. somebody's property really well. Um, if I'm selling an expensive property and it gets passed in at uh, auction, I don't want that to be because I didn't catch the right shot. So also building on that, if you're working in asset inspection or one of the large industry companies, it's really representing their brand really well, whether that be capturing images for their social media feeds or performing assets on their actual, their inspections on their, their key assets. It's working in a way that they want you to work and that complements what they already do. What's like the most off-the-wall uh, application of this um, certificate that you can think of? Uh, we had a beauty recently. Um, it hasn't come to fruition yet, but one of my colleagues in RMIT, um, his wife is pregnant and we have a large uh, agricultural spraying drone. So we may do a little bit of a gender reveal using blue or pink water <laughs> spray from the drone. That's the most outrageous one so far. I'd really look forward to doing that one. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't say they were photographing people from a distance. It was getting really concerning there. I'm like, where are we going? So your remote pilot license training courses were the first courses in Australia certified by the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, which is a great credit to you. And 
that's um, they met the revised regulations from 2019. Uh, I wondered, you know, when you've got to deliver such highly regulated training and you're facing a year where people are in lockdown, how has the delivery of your training courses changed? We were really lucky. Uh, my background, I was building compliance systems for banks for a long time. So I understood regulation. I understood how to take regulations, turn that into systems, and then train large groups of people across those systems in a highly compliant way. Um, and have the checks and balances and the back-end data to make sure people had done what they needed to do. Um, and whether that be for a financial crime or counter-terrorism funding or for remote pilot licence, it's very similar. It's checks and balances and um, it's, it's more carrot than stick, but it's also making sure there's a stick in the background to make sure people do what they need to do the way they need to do it. The courses we deliver, we've, we're lucky we built them as online systems, so when COVID really kicked in, we just flipped the switch and put everything back online and took it out of the classroom. We provide flipped classes for our students, so they cover a couple of modules themselves, and they book in for a flipped class, which is a tutorial with myself or one of our instructors. We take them through the key points, make sure that's embedded in, and then move forward until they've completed all of the modules and complete their exam. I think this is great because it's giving people a real sense of what's actually involved in doing this professionally. It's not only about the hands-on-the-remote-piloting aspect, but let's face it, that is the fun part. So when we do get our hands on the remote, are you noticing any aptitude in, say, ex-avid uh, video games players, for example? Yeah, we, we talk a little bit about the Xbox PUM. Um, where we, we do definitely see from our uni students, less so from our private clients who are kind of an older age demographic, but our, our uni students definitely have really experienced thumbs. They fly, want to fly high, far and fast, and we <laughs> drag them back low, slow, precise and controlled, um, which can, they can find a little bit frustrating because with their high-performance toys, some of the drones, they, they really, really are a lot of fun to fly. We've got to know how to fly it safely and consistently. And imagine you're flying a, a customer's assets. That's what we try to teach the students. And just Joseph, like that, you've surely... brought my hopes oh, down sorry, to the Dan. ground again. <laughs> Say that again, Don? And just like that, you've brought my hopes on down to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's we a... do get to do a lot of research stuff as well that can kind of push the envelope a little bit on what we get to do. That is a lot of fun, flying the drone. Um, Certainly the practical flying day where you're flying with us for maybe five or six hours on a day. It's a steep learning curve for a lot of people. You will be whacked at the end of the day. And that is a lot of fun. We really enjoy it. And it's the best part of my job, meeting people from such diverse backgrounds and getting them to a successful conclusion. That's incredible. I want to I want to ask um, a future future looking question because I'm sure everyone who talks to you about drones wonders this. Any pitch on how far off we're going to be to, until we see drones that can carry humans as the cargo, or little little drone cars, or little drone taxis. Like any thoughts on is that in the next two years or the next ten, or is that just a pipe dream? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, we, I've had a, quite a few conversations with some of the guys who have been cutting edge. So these are the university professors and the heads of mechatronics um, in some of our, our unis here in in Victoria. The challenge is really how to integrate drones into the existing airspace. So if you think of it as channels in the sky or corridors in the sky, so that people will have a dedicated corridor for what it is they wish to do that won't interfere with other things. That's a big ask. 
Um, there's a lot of really bright, clever people, far cleverer than I, focusing on those problems at the moment. I think once they solve that and figure out how to integrate the airspace, ensure the airspace safety, test it and prove it, because um, the regulator is not going to let it happen easily unless they're convinced. But I think it's coming. I'd be surprised if we don't see a version, whether that be for delivery or human transport, within the next three to five years. Interesting, interesting. Happy time, Laura. Ready for the Jetsons <laughs> future. I want it right now. I'm so ready to see it. Uh, we do see things like videos coming out of Shanghai where for their New Year's celebrations they have um, drones that are synced up in the sky to create like entertainment experiences, a bit like what Dan was describing earlier in the show at Metallica concerts. Are we able to do those sort of things under the regulations in Australia or is that still you know, something that's um, outside of the possibilities? Um, there's an element of it at the moment. So you can apply if you write a procedure for your, your manual for swarming of drones. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the agricultural drones that we fly, in theory, you can fly five at one time. And right. we don't do that at the moment, but it's certainly a capability that's there. The technology is there and the software supports and I've seen it working well and, and, and working in anger, so to speak. What you're seeing in Hong Kong and Shanghai, large arrays of drones swarming. Um, look, it's technically possible to do it. Again, the challenge is how to integrate that into the airspace and how to manage crowds safely so that you don't have humans and drones in the same space. Yeah, they were definitely doing all of this over bodies of water from what I could see. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Look, we have run out of time with you, Joseph, but we've been speaking of Joseph McMahon. He's the program director at Swasrov. No? Yep. <laughs> Getting there. <laughs> Getting there. Um, you can find out more at www.suasrov.com.au. I reckon there's some gorgeous careers here for some people um, who might be listening, especially in these tough times. It's great to hear about a really vibrant industry. Thanks so much for speaking with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. And now it's time for Weird News of the Week. What's, uh, what's happening that's weird this week in tech? Well, we've seen uh, the slightly sad, nostalgic story coming out of um, Puerto Rico, which is the Arecibo Observatory, which is an enormous dish, which featured in a James Bond movie, if I recall correctly, um, some years ago, had a collapse and has been shut down. Um, and I think it's up in, up in the air whether or not it's going to be returned to working glory. So the cable snapped. Puerto Rico has... Um, sort of notoriously had a number of bad weather storms that have already degraded the quality of the dish. And I think this has maybe been a, a long time coming. Um, but yes, for people who are space nerds like me and love these enormous dishes that are there for like the very, very long wavelengths coming through the universe, this is a bit of a sad day to find out this news. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm very sad because of James Bond Goldeneye 007, which um, it featured prominently at the end of that movie. So, um, yeah, there was that amazing chase scene along the rim, wasn't there? Yeah, and then uh, he drops the guy off the middle into the dish and he dies. That's right. Yeah, and then it's at the end of uh, Goldeneye on Nintendo 64. <laughs> <laughs> and Laura, there's an event on this week that we wanted to call out. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, there's a book release event um, called A Secret History, which is happening next Monday, the 7th of December at 7 p.m., 
Um, it's up on Try Booking. If you just go to Try Booking and Google A Secret Australia, you should hopefully find it. Um, but it's it's talking about WikiLeaks and it's talking about the sort of deep state machinations that are happening in Australia that were exposed over the past decade or so um, through the Julian Assange leaches, leaks and through the um, the various uh, like uncoverings of the political machine that we've seen. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this book coming out and I'll be going. So it's free. It's got some really great speakers. Um, so if you're interested, I would definitely check it out. Yeah, I'm going to head to that too. I think it's really, really uh, relevant. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening. We spoke to Anthony Agius and Joseph McMahon from the, Swiss, the Sizzle and Swasrov, respectively. Thanks to you too, Dan, Laura. Always a pleasure making radio with you. Big thank you to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Uh, we've been bite into it. We are really on the ramp up to Christmas now. We will try and pepper the next couple of shows with maybe some some tech Christmassy type suggestions to, to get people um, thinking about things. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 